Hello, and welcome to the NVIDIA AI Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Kravitz. Our guest today is the author of a forthcoming book that traces the history of AI from the mid-20th century to the present. What makes this book like other great history books, but unlike some others about AI and tech in general, is that it's about the people and the stories behind the technology as much as the tech itself. And it's really funny. Kate Metz is a reporter covering emerging technologies for the New York Times, and his book, Genius Makers, The Mavericks Who Brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the World, is due out March 16th. It's a great read, full stop. It's got great characters, and as you might guess, some pretty jaw-dropping moments. We're fortunate enough to have Kate here to talk about the book, so let's get right to it. Kate Metz, welcome, and thanks for joining the NVIDIA AI Podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, I enjoyed your description. If there's one thing I want to do with this book, I want to I want to show people that it is about people in particular and that it is funny and that people, including engineers and AI res researchers, are fascinating, unexpected in some ways and funny people. My father was an engineer and you know, we, he used to joke about all the cliches that were applied to engineers. And part of my mission you know, with the book and part of my mission on Earth is to show people that engineers, coders like my father, are real, interesting, fascinating people, too. Well, you know, you you mentioned uh, when we were emailing, when we were getting this set up and you sent over a, a preview copy of the book, uh, that the prologue kind of drops you right into the narrative. And it does. And one of the things that I really loved about it was that it wasn't one of those prologues that sets you up with the story and then it like changes tune when you get into the book proper and, and it's no longer about the people. It was just from the get go. It's kind of as much the story of this world changing technology as it is about this man who can't sit down. He has to travel cross country without sitting down because of this back injury. And then you tell the story of AI, you know, through these people and, and all the skeptics and all the doubt they face and all of this stuff. Um, so why don't we kind of, you, you kind of started with this, but why don't, why don't you give us the elevator pitch? What's Genius Makers about? Well, I mean, the other thing I'm seeking to do with this book is show people the reality of what has happened with so-called AI and what is happening and, and maybe what will happen, or at least point to it. Mm -hmm. That term artificial intelligence gets thrown around so much and it gets applied almost to anything and everything. And I, that confuses people, I feel like. Sure. And it certainly confuses people, you know, like my mother, say, um, who's not steeped in this area. And it's hard for people to understand if they just read what goes on in the press, what is really happening. So much of it is hype. So much of it is nonsense. So much of it is misleading. And you've got some people on one side saying, you know, we're on our way to a machine that can do anything the human brain can do. And then you've got other people whose qualifications uh, are just as good, uh, who are just as intelligent and just as well-educated and, and just as steeped in this area. And they'll tell you, we're nowhere close to that. That's all nonsense. Uh, all this stuff about deep learning is is way, way overhyped. All the technological progress is about to end. And if you hear all that, even if you're in the field, what are you supposed to do, right? <laughs> yeah. So my aim and, you know, I got halfway through the book and I thought, wow, this was a mistake. My aim, though, 
was to try to encapsulate everything that has happened over the past 10 years and explain it to people. And, you know, miracle of miracles. By the end of it, I felt like I had gotten there, mostly because I found these incredibly interesting people who some readers may have heard of, they may not have. But I don't think they know the full extent of this story and who these people are. And what I what I kept telling myself at my you know lowest moments was, if I can show people who Jeff Hinton is, and that's who you alluded to when you talked about the prologue. Yep. If I can show people who he is, this book can work, right? It's not about me or what I am doing. It is about him. He is fundamentally and in surprising ways, time and again, surprising, a, a fascinating person. Let's get into that a little bit. And, you know, without, <laughs> I mean, spoiler alert, AI is still here, right? So, you know, we're not going to spoil the story of AI, but without spoiling the details of the book, who's Jeff Hinton? Jeff Hinton was born in London just after the, the Second World War. And he came up in the field of AI, and that alone is a great story, but he came up in the field of AI at a time when it was at its lowest ebb, the early 70s. Yeah. And the book goes into that, but but he had this belief that, um, that you could build intelligent machines, so to speak, in the image of the human brain. And he had a particular belief about this, and he spent his career um, 50 years now on that notion. And over those 50 years, that idea rose um, in people's estimation in the field and then sharply fell off and mm -hmm. then rose again. He consistently believed in and, and, and worked on this one idea called a neural network. You know, a, a, it's a mathematical system built in the image loosely in the image of the brain and for decades, literally, a lot of people thought this this would never work. And just at the moment where that idea reached its lowest ebb, it started to work. And that's really where you can trace the gains of the last uh, 10 years to. And that's what the book uh, tries to document and, and show what that idea is, why it struggled for so long, and then why it suddenly came to the fore. And it does that largely through Jeff. And so there are these stories about, you know, going to, to <laughs> these academic conferences and people shouting each other down and making fun of each other in front of their colleagues. And, and uh, you know, these characters, uh, Marvin Minsky and Frank Rosenblatt and, and these early things um, with something called the perceptron and symbolic AI. Maybe can you talk a little bit about kind of those, those early days and kind of what, I don't know, the, the stories of, of Jeff's resilience and kind of his, his faith and his own belief and, and then these, um, these moments within academia at these conferences. Can you just talk a little bit about that and kind of the things that had to happen just to get us to the point where, you know, the past 10 years could even have a chance of happening? Yeah, I mean, what people may or may not realize is that the neural network idea that Jeff really latched onto in the early 70s it goes back even further. Um, it goes back to the 50s yeah. or even the 40s, you know, in some ways. But Frank Rosenblatt, um, who was a professor at Cornell and then a, at a, a lab, a sister lab of Cornell in Buffalo, 
Um, he's one of the first people to build one of these things, and he had he had incredibly high hopes for it. And you could you could see this in the pages of the New York Times um, in the late fifties, where he he sort of lays out uh, this extravagant and unbelievable path for a neural network. He, he sees it, you know, not only not only solving computer vision, um, but speech recognition, and um, you know, becoming able to to not only think but recreate itself and fly into space. <laughs> and it's, it's astounding. Yeah, you know. People tend to believe these sorts of things when an expert is talking about them. And there was a lot of hype around around this idea. And then the hype was debunked. And Marvin Minsky was one of the people who really turned against this idea. And they are a fascinating pair of researchers. <laughs> they have a history together. They went to the same high school right? <laughs> and end up on the opposite on, on either side of this idea. And they are a really good way of showing the tension here and showing the tension that has existed in AI since the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, people think about it as a monolithic field sometimes. You know, the New York Times in the past has said, AI experts say, well, that, that's, not, that's not one solid, always, um, you know, always intent on agreeing with everyone else group. That's right. a group that really disagrees. And you have these tribes within that, and they often disagree. Let me tell you, those two guys, uh, Rosenblatt and, and Minsky, really show how that can happen. You know, I, I think especially for, you know, this podcast in particular, a lot of times we have folks on who, you know, have just done something, whether it's a, um, a, a DIYer who, you know, did something cool at home that got some, got some attention, or a startup, or even, you know, an NVIDIA researcher talking about the, the latest and greatest. But I think what's so great about your book is this kind of earlier history that maybe um, people don't know about, or maybe, you know, sort of read about, but you forget because things are changing so fast these days. But I want to ask you a little bit, uh, just kind of latching on to what you were just talking about, about the AI winter. And, and maybe you can describe briefly for the listeners what that was, when it was, and, and how we got out of it. Yeah. The AI winter is, you know, is a, is a common notion in the field. And, and basically the idea is these are difficult technologies to build and you need a lot of money and you need the backing of, of some, you know, some really deep pocketed organizations. And, you know, in the beginning, that was the Department of Defense and other parts of the government. And right. they funded people like Minsky and Rosenblatt, uh, you know, the Navy, among others, funded Rosenblatt. And, you know, when Rosenblatt is making these grandiose claims and people believe it, the money comes in. And then, you know, years go by and people start to realize, well, wait, wait, this is not working as <laughs> it would work. Yeah. Maybe we shouldn't fund this. And then you got people like Minsky saying, ah, this, this is definitely not working like he said it would. And it's never going to work. And so then the money starts to flow to people like Minsky, and then Minsky's stuff doesn't quite work as as he said it would, and others, and and then the money, you know, the money goes away, and that's when you enter these these AI winters, and then you have to wait a while until the technology progresses, but also until people forget that these overinflated claims um, can happen, and then they happen again. And people believe them again. And you see these cycles throughout the past 50 years. And in a lot of ways, we're in the middle of another hype cycle, right? A lot of a lot of stuff gets attributed to these technologies that is not really the reality. But it's, you know, this is this is just how Silicon Valley works, right? It's right. these hype cycles. 
It's been like that since the 50s. There are a lot of stories and, and moments in the book where you kind of, you know, and I think it's this way with so many walks of life, if you actually read the history or, or, you know, listen to the people who are there tell the stories, these almost chance moments where it's like, oh, you know, if if these two stars didn't align, maybe none of this would have happened. There's the Microsoft guy who says, oh, you know, if they'd hired me uh, a year earlier, I might have accidentally shut the whole field down and all that kind of stuff. There's this um, this meeting in a Google kitchen between Andrew Ng, who, you know, is a name lots of people know, and Jeff Dean, another luminary in the field who... You know, it might have been a chance meeting. It, it might have been actually Andrew was was arranging it the whole time. And that's what kind of set off this next wave of harnessing, you know, all of Google's data center computers to to power what became the infamous cat paper. What are a couple of your own favorite stories from, from researching the book, uh, whether they made it into the book or maybe not, that stuck out to you? Well, first of all, it's funny. Someone asked me the other day, what, what are the stories that you you didn't put in? And yeah. they are all in. I mean, like, <laughs> I'm so glad because there were a few that I, I was worried weren't going to make it because you really have to make sure they're right. But like, first of all, the best story is the prologue, right? Yeah. Which is the moment that Jeff Hinton and his students move into Google. And it's a it's a moment, you know, around this this uh, technology that is now called AlexNet um, after one of Hinton's um, students that, that has been written about ad nauseum in the tech press, sometimes in the mainstream press. AI researchers know about AlexNet, which was a, a, a extremely important image recognition um, paper that really launched neural networks into that field right. and and into the mainstream in a lot of ways. It, you know, um, so people know about that, but they don't know the real story of how those three people, Jeff and his two students, Alex Krzyzewski and Ilya Sutskever, moved into Google. And that's ultimately what this is about. It's about people like Hinton, who had this idea for decades, being snapped up into these companies when their idea started to work. Yeah. And that is the moment when this happened. And so that's my favorite story. And I spent years reporting that and getting the details right. And I still almost don't believe it because it's such an amazing story. All the players are there from the beginning, right? Microsoft is there. Google is there. DeepMind is there. A lab um, that has only had only just gotten started in yeah. London, which yep. would rise to the fore in other ways um, in years to come. They're there, and the conflicts are there. China is there, and and their involvement. I mean, Baidu, mm -hmm. you know, the Google of China is involved in this. That to me is an astounding story. And it's going down at Harrah's on the Vegas Strip, which uh, <laughs> anybody who's ever gone to a tech event or conference out there, it just adds this wonderful layer of atmosphere as you're reading. Yeah, so that's that, that's, that's definitely my favorite. But there are so many others involving, you know, DeepMind, for instance, and uh, and how they moved into Google. Uh, that that is also uh, an astounding story, and how Jeff Hinton, you know, pops up in this. Like the guy, he's you know, he's everywhere, and every time he pops up, it's in these like ways that you just cannot believe. And there's so many little, you know, we we mentioned kind of at the beginning about how the book is is wonderfully funny, and to kind of tangent for a second, because I didn't want to interrupt you before, but one of the things that I, I love about the book and I think makes for great reading on whatever the topic is, but particularly if it's a, a historical type of 
of manuscript or, or text is that you're able to write, you know, the, the book is written in a way that is um, very readable, right? It, it moves at a nice pace. And and as we've been talking about, it's, it's so human and, and full of human stories, but you're packing an incredible amount of information and history about, you know, a wildly complex subject matter into these pages. And as I was reading it, I was just thinking like, man, how did you distill down what must have been, you know, terabytes of data, so to speak, <laughs> into a, uh, you know, 330 page book? Can you peel back the curtain a little bit and tell us about, you know, your process of when you got the idea for the book and how you started reporting it? And and if that bleeds into, you know, your work as a covering emerging tech, uh, you know, for the times, um, all the better. But but how did this all kind of get started and how did you go about reporting it? Well, you know, I had started covering this area when I was with Wired magazine and had covered it for, you know, about three or four years, the rise of, of neural networks, and got a glimpse of what was going on and a glimpse inside the lives of some of these people, including Hinton, and pitched a book along these lines. And it was when the hype was really at its height and 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 the book was bought. And I think it was a good pitch. And you know, it landed the book a home, but the book as it progressed is nothing like the pitch. Like the pitch <laughs> sure. was that it was going to be about these people and it was going to be a narrative. But what ended up happening is the story went in places that no one expected, including me. And what it ended up being about was, you know, people like Hinton and their their belief in this idea and their idealism. Yeah. And how that clashed in so many ways with uh, these very large companies, which are driven by other motives, this happened time and again in ways that surprised a lot of people. And that really became the story. And that certainly surprised me. I mean, just as far as putting it all together, you know, I couldn't have done this if I wasn't a beat reporter in this in this field and, and hadn't done it for years and really saw what was going on. Um, it was kind of a product of, of my job. Sure. But in the end, you know, I, I think it got to a good place. Have you met Jeff? Oh, absolutely. I talked to him today on the phone. Um, <laughs> and were a lot of these, uh, and you know, again, without asking you to reveal sources, details, et cetera, but, but were a lot of these stories related first person or third person or, you know, how are the stories told to you? Because the detail throughout is just, it's very detailed, right? So I'm just curious kind of how you went about reporting that stuff. Well, that is just about going over the same ground over and over and over again, going back to people, trying to get them to reveal a little bit more, going to new people with that little bit of information you got from the person before and saying, right. can you verify this? What else can you tell me? Like, for instance, that lead anecdote, that prologue, that, mm -hmm. like I said, that took years to report. And to me, one of the most difficult parts of it, and one of the most important parts of it, was the sale price. Mm. That sort of shows you what's going on there. And I was worried at one point that I wasn't going to be able to get the sale price into the book, right? You've got to have you've got to have multiple sources verifying that. And this is just for the listener, this is the beginning when Hinton goes and eventually sells his company that gets him and his team into Google. Yes. And, you know, I had, you know, I had the whole 
Jeff Hinton, you know, he sets up this auction for his company. And it's just that I had a, I had how the whole auction played out, but I needed to verify, you know, the price. And that just yep. like, it just takes a lot of doing, especially because a lot of these people have moved into these very, very large companies and that makes them hard to talk to. Um, right. Uh, so it's, it's just a, a lot of, about about graft, as they say in, in the UK. <laughs> We're talking to Cade Metz. Cade is a reporter covering emerging technologies uh, for the New York Times out of their San Francisco bureau. Uh, but we're talking about his forthcoming book, Genius Makers, the mavericks who brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the world. It's due out March 16th, which is uh, in about a month as we record this. And again, just to say it again, it's it's a great read. Highly recommended if you're listening to this pod and you're interested in any aspect of AI, let alone the history of how this stuff all come to be where it's at now. But Cade, let's, let's kind of fast forward a little bit closer to the the current day. And I wanted to ask you a couple questions about things kind of near the end of the book. One is about robots. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how Peter Abiel changed Jeff's mind about reinforcement learning and, and what that might mean and what Peter's work means for the future of robotics? Yeah. So, you know, as we discussed, Jeff Hinton believed in this neural network idea, this mathematical system that can recognize patterns in data. And that's what drives you know, image recognition today and speech recognition. So, you know, when your phone can recognize the commands, you, you, you speak to Siri. Yeah. And, it, you know, it is driving a lot of like, you know, natural language stuff. But one of the things, you know, this has been applied to is robotics, uh, including self-driving cars and their, you know, efforts to recognize, say, pedestrians on the road um, or that kind of thing. And and quick aside, people probably read the book. You'll be surprised at how early uh, folks were working on self-driving cars. Ab- absolutely. And it's, and it's, it's so interesting how all this stuff dovetails, you know, and it, it sort of happens at the same time pe- people start believing in the self-driving car idea. But, but basically these, these systems that can learn tasks on their own can be applied not only to self-driving cars, but they can be applied to other types of robotics. And as you mentioned, what you can do is you can apply this idea to what's called reinforcement learning. And so that's when a system learns literally by trial and error, extreme trial and error. So like there's this great scene in the book where this other uh, researcher who uh, was a colleague of Peter Abiel's at the uh, University of California, Berkeley, named, um, named Sergey Levine. Folks might have heard the name. <laughs> Absolutely. So he goes to Google and, you know, they set up what they what they call the arm farm. And it's these robotic arms and they learn in this way. So they just like put a bunch of stuff into a bin and the idea is to get the arm to learn to pick up this stuff, but it has to do it by by trial and error. So w- what it means is it just fails over and over and over again. And, you know, they, they go home for the weekend and they come back and it looks like the lab is covered in blood, right? <laughs> and, they, and it's just like a crime scene. And it turns out like it had, you know, tried to pick up and failed to pick up a thing, a lipstick. And, you know, and so there's just <laughs> lipstick all over the place. But this goes on literally for days and weeks as these machines learn these tasks. And even Jeff Hinton uh, has been really skeptical of this reinforcement learning idea. And there's there's a lot of tension in the book between him and the people who believe in this idea. Um, 
you know, most notably the, the researchers at DeepMind, who we mentioned before. Yeah. But Je- even Jeff Hinton comes around to this idea because he realizes that the, you know, the amount of processing power needed to drive this, um, which is extensive, you know, is now available in some ways and it continues to grow. And that's what that's about. Like you just need right. enormous amounts of computing power to do that. So even he, you know, you know, sees some future in that idea, as extreme as it is. So one of the things that kind of stuck out towards the end of the book is that Hinton talking about how old ideas are new. And there's this idea that, uh, well, there's kind of two threads to that. One is sort of how that plays out throughout the book. And then the other has to do with something that if I have it right, that that Jeff kind of first started playing around with this idea of capsule networks back in the seventies, and now forty you know forty or so years later, uh, he's working on capsule networks again. Can you talk a little bit about what a capsule network is, and then also maybe just around this idea of old ideas becoming new again, and how that's a thread through Jeff's work? I'm I'm glad you you focused on this. You know, there's another great character in the book, a, a student, another student of Jeff's and students of Jeff litter the book, but a guy named George Dahl. Um, what, one of my favorite interviews, he's now at Google, uh, studied with Jeff at the university of Toronto. And that's what he said is that the theme in Jeff's lab at the university of Toronto before Jeff joined Google was old ideas are new. And what that meant was, is that if an idea had not been disproven, if there was still hope that it would work, if there was still a small chance that it would work and you believed in it, you kept working on it until you could prove it didn't work. And that alone is a fascinating idea. And, you know, and it's an idea that's at the heart of so many, so many good novels, so many good nonfiction narratives, right? People who believe in something in spite of everyone else saying uh, they shouldn't believe in it. And that was the case here. And Jeff has continued, you know, along those same lines, there's been a backlash in recent years, even, you know, in the AI community against neural networks and uh, people who really take a lot of pride almost in, in pointing out their limitations and their limitations are extensive but Jeff has this belief in these kinds of systems that certainly continues and is, you know, really part of who he is. And one of these ideas is a capsule network, which is almost like an enhanced neural network that seeks to be more powerful than what has come before. And it is an idea that he first had in the late 70s and he started to revisit it. And there's a great scene in the book where he kind of demonstrates this idea to me. Jury's still out on what the effect of this idea will be. But it's just one of many that Jeff, 50 years later, uh, continues to work on. And so to kind of land on uh, the big question hanging out there for the the initiated and not, will the robots take over? There's always been this tension and it's in the book and it's it's in the mainstream media and in the informed and uninformed discussions about this stuff between what people call practical and general AI. There's this little anecdote, this little line at the towards the end of the book about how, um, and talking about, you know, is, is general AI, not even is it possible, but is it, is it worth focusing on? Is it worth thinking about? Or should we think, be thinking about more practical kind of task-oriented things? And there's a line about, you know, does a robotic surgeon really need to know the baseball scores? Like, who cares? I just want it to be good at surgery. 
And so at the end of the book, you kind of note that uh, Hinton maybe doesn't even really think that general AI makes sense. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit and maybe, you know, throw your own perspective in covering emerging tech for so long and and working on the book for years now? And what's your, what do you think about it? Here's my main aim there. And this is how I want to help people when it comes to, to thinking about this. And you're right, there's a lot of uninformed discussion and this can be a confusing topic, but what I want, what I want people to understand is that if someone tells you that they are going to build AGI, artificial general intelligence, a machine that can do anything the brain can do, if they tell you that today, they don't know how to get there. Okay. So on some level, this that is aspirational. And people will argue about that. But really, what the, this argument is about at this point is it's it's about a belief. And there are some people who are driven by this belief that this, this is not only possible, but possible in the near term. And there are some people who say, wait, hold on. Um, how can you say that? Right. We don't have any evidence that we can get there. And. You know, it, it is, you know, the, the chapter that tackles this is called religion. And some people see it that way. And I just, you know, I want to make it clear to people that it's it's almost like any other, you know, Silicon Valley company that comes to you and says, I'm going to build X. Um, they're not there yet. And they may or may not get there. Even with self-driving cars, it's not clear when we're going to get there. Yeah despite the promises. So when it comes to a machine that can do anything the brain can do, you know, that's a task far, far more difficult than a self-driving car. And that's what I want people to understand, that none of us know what the future holds there. So, you know, any of us can say what's going to happen and and who can say that we're wrong because none of us know. So aside from the book, what are you working on these days? Are there is there an emerging technology beyond AI that uh, you know you're keeping your eye on? Well, it's, it, what's so interesting to me is that all the stuff that is discussed in the book, all these threads the book follows over the past ten years, they continue to play out. Yeah, like you know, there have been some big moments since I finished the book. DeepMind essentially solving what is called uh, the protein folding problem, which was a, which is a key problem in drug discovery and other types of medicine and biology. OpenAI mm-hmm. releasing what's called GPT-3, which is this natural language system that does things that are unexpected. Timnit Gebru at Google um, yep. saying she was fired after she called attention to ethical questions in a lot of these systems. All that happened since I finished the book all of them are just a continuation of what happened in the book. Right. And in some ways, they really echo these moments in the book. And what it shows is that these technologies are continuing to progress at an incredibly fast rate. And the questions that they raise have not been solved. And we as a society, Google as a company, OpenAI as a company, so many other companies are still struggling with all that. And we're all trying to to determine amidst this larger, you know, sort of sea of questions we're all dealing with as a society right now, how we're how we're going to deal with this. That's what I cover. That's what's so interesting to me are these ideas 
not only in and of themselves, which are fascinating, but what are their effects uh, on the larger society? And that's what I cover on a daily basis. Well, again, uh, for anybody listening who has not read the book, it's well worth the time. It's a great read. It's entertaining. It's fun. It's human. And and you learn a lot about the history, but also just to echo how you just put it, kid, the human element to all of this and, and what it's meant and what it means going forward. It's a great story. Uh, for folks who want to follow your current work uh, with the New York Times and elsewhere, do you keep a blog? Are you on social media? Where can they uh, kind of latch on to your train and see where it's going? Uh, main place to follow me is uh, at the New York Times, um, but I'm also on Twitter at Cade Metz. Thanks for having me. I, I truly enjoyed it. Uh, likewise, the pleasure the pleasure was definitely ours. And, uh, you know, thank you again. Hope everybody out there gets a chance to read the book. I feel like I'm, I'm, I should stop shilling, but it's really just an enjoyable experience. So, Cade, thanks for taking the time to come on the show and all the best in your future work. You too. Thank you. <laughs>